Welcome back, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we have an announcement. We are hosting a free webinar about hotel recovery trends and outlook on August 20th, Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific Time. We have four speakers, and they are from HVS, Arbor Lodging, LWHA Asset Management Group, and Kexon Group, which is an Asian family office. So this is a free event, and the recording will be available on our website, YouTube, and this podcast. We will put the registration link in the show notes. Please forward this link to your friends and colleagues and share on social media to help us to spread the word. If you haven't subscribed to our email newsletter, please go to cre-media.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter so you get updates of all of these upcoming events, webinars, podcasts, videos that we are doing, and you will get a recap of all of these events that we do. So please subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please write us a review and please share this podcast with your friends and on social media to help us grow. Thank you so much, everyone. And let's get started with today's episode. got feedback from our audience that the book club audio is kind of bad. I think it's because we used to do it on Clubhouse as well. So that's why like this Is this better? Time, this is a lot better. Yes. Say something. Hello, hello, good. can you hear me? Yes, very yeah, good. This is the quality, the quality of audio that we want. Good job, guys. Okay, no, go so back talk to, about JDS development. Yes. So, so yeah, what have they known for? So I'm looking at the website. They done the West 57th, the mm-hmm. Billionaire Row, Cherry Street. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, going back to it, Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, look, they're a big New York developer, and you know, look, I think everybody. Uh, where is Nine the Cobb? I mean, what I like about this is the architecture, the, the architect they selected is SHOP, S-H-O-P. They're known for like unique design and Nine to Club, that design is just out of the ordinary. It just stands out in the Brooklyn area, right? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I mean, Brooklyn, it'll be the tallest building in Brooklyn. For years, the tallest building in Brooklyn was the Williamsburg Bank building. But look, the world's changing. And you know, the question I have, is the market going to be able to support all these new buildings? I mean, I, I think it'll be fine. But, you know, I think that, you know, look, you can also run into some problems. I think there's a point where there's just too much new inventory coming onto the market. So Art and Jeremy... Welcome back to another episode of the book club discussion and movie too, because this time we're going to talk about a movie that everybody knows about if you work in commercial real estate or the finance industry, The Big Short. And what is the name of the book that we will also talk about, Jeremy? Uh, I think it's the, the greatest trade ever. Yes, it's about John Paulson and how he betted against the housing market before the the housing market crash in 2008. So 
Jeremy, I'm going to let you to take over as usual, and so I will I, eat I, my watermelon. I had actually I read The Big Short, and I saw the movie on a plane. I hadn't read this book yet, or maybe I read it ten years ago and forgotten all about it. It's a great story. So when you asked to to, to you said you wanted to redo this book, I was like, okay, I'll get it. I I have two copies of it actually, and I found one and I just read it. It's a story that's been told a lot. It gets better every time. It's a Wall Street book as opposed to a real estate book, so it's really competing with some of the greatest books in the history. And good as it was, it, it, it it's not liars poker where they actually played liars poker, which is the craziest gambling game ever. You have to read that book. It's not like Barbarians at the Gate, which was about KKR. And Fortsman Little, and, and and at the time, what was one of the biggest takeovers ever. It's not like oh God, what was another one? Uh, Den of Thieves, where you had you know inside traders, and you know, there's a pantheon of finance books. This book and The Big Short. The thing that keeps them from, I think, you know, being at the book everybody thinks about when you think of finance. When you think of finance, you think of liars poker. And I think the problem these guys had was that they're just. It's a great story, but the characters aren't the compelling larger than life characters that you had in Liars Poker. But at the same time, it's it's a great story. So basically, John Paulson is a trader. He was, somehow he built up a big hedge fund. But he was not one of the biggest hedge funders. I mean, if you're thinking big hedge funders in the, in the 2000s, you're thinking Druckenmiller, or Soros. You know, there were a bunch of guys who everybody knows. Ackman, and I'm always confusing Ackman with that other guy uh, whose name eludes me. They'll come to me in a few minutes. The guy's fighting with Herbalife. You've got a guy like SAC, Stephen A. Cohn, who buys a friggin' shark and puts it in his living room, like a taxidermied shark. They make a TV show out of him. These guys are smaller and they're less colorful, but they make good money. But, you know, look, they're rich. Paulson's rich, but he's not Stephen A. Cohn rich, at least at this point. So what he did for the most part was mergers arbs. So he'd find out the companies were merging and he'd buy trading that, you know, making money, you know, that kind of way. It's called arbitrage. You, you buy something and you can make money off the spread, selling it to something else. And he has a friend from, they worked at Bear together. And Bear Stearns is going to come up again because it's one of the reasons the economy collapsed. Bear Stearns was known as, yes, this reminds me of the book, What It Takes, isn't Which it? Which one was that? The founder of Blackstone. Yes. Well, look, it's, it's yeah. I mean, you got to realize these guys are coming up at that, a, that mm -hmm. age. And even now, most of the guys on Wall Street have been at one of three or four firms. Back in the yeah. day, you know, Bear was a small firm. They did a lot of structured finance and they were scrappy. Peterson and Schwartzberg, were not at Bear Stearns. They were at Lehman Brothers. I think Peterson at one point was the head of Lehman Brothers, and there was a there was a revolution. They kicked him out. And, you know, so basically, originally these just as background, these firms were all originally partnerships. So Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, they were all partnerships, and they went public in the '80s. Well, Goldman went public in the '90s, but they went public and they got into something called prop trading. They bet the firm's money. They do all sorts of stuff. They made a lot of money doing that. And Merrill, 
started doing. You know, for years, Merrill Lynch had been known for Merrill Lynch brokers. Mother Merrill, you know, the thundering herd, you know, they, they were stockbrokers. I have a Merrill Edge account. I don't have a Merrill Lynch account. I have a Merrill Edge account, which is their online version. So Bear was a scrappier firm. It was run by a guy who played bridge all the time. Uh, there was a guy, Jimmy Kane. There was a guy, Greenberg. They were tough traders, and they did a lot of mortgage stuff. So did the Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers at one point bought Archstone. So what they do is they they go out and they buy up a bunch of mortgages and they package them into securities and they'd sell the securities. So the theory was was that American homeowners are actually a pretty safe investment because you will do anything to keep your house. And, and these guys, what they started doing was they started buying good mortgages packaging them up into securities, bonds, basically, and selling them. And they were divided up into various tranches, you know, the, the gunky tranche, the less gunky tranche, the okay tranche, the great tranche, the best tranche. And you'd pay more for the crappier, the B-level notes. You'd pay less for the better notes. It makes sense. And who'd they sell this to? Me, you, your pension fund, my investment funds, all this money where, you know, all these places where you stash your money, they had pieces of this. It was seen as a safe investment. And originally, you ever see um, It's a Wonderful Life? Originally, your bank, your local bank would make all these loans. By the time the 90s comes around, the 2000s comes around, nobody, you go to a mortgage company. The one that they kept mentioning in the book was Countrywide. Countrywide wasn't even a bank. It was a, it was a bank. But it wasn't your traditional bank where, you know, like you walk into Wells Fargo and you get a loan from there, although that, that that's not even a a good example because Wells Fargo is now a national company. But you know, traditionally, I'd go to my local thrift, my bank, you know, whatever. I'd get a loan, I'd buy a house, you know, we'd keep it on their books. And that was their asset. So in It's a Wonderful Life, I don't know if you guys seen It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, no. We have to fix that. You know, there, there's a bank run. Uh, George, Jimmy Stewart, the, the greatest American actor, one of the greatest American actors of his day. He's basically going on his honeymoon and, and he sees that there's about to be a bank run. I'm going to put the bank run video for you guys to watch later on. And he goes in and he's like, what are you people doing? They're like, well, we heard this is like 1932. This is when bank, every bank was closing. So he goes in and he says, well, you know, I don't, they're like, oh, I want my money back. And he says, I don't have your money. And they're like, what do you mean you don't have our money? He says, I took your money and I loaned it to you, your neighbor, I, all these other, your money, I don't have it. I don't keep cash on hand. I lend it out. That changed. So you go from it's a wonderful life to a situation where basically the bank makes the loan and, send it and sells the loan off. The loan is sold to some service. And we talked about this in, in, in our corporate finance classes, not corporate finance, in our um, real estate capital finance, mar capital markets. This is where they talk yes. about this. So we would be looking at capital bonds. Capital yeah. market class. Shout out to Professor Delaney. You're awesome. This is what this, this is what they were talking about. You know, you, you you had these bonds that were filled with loans, and the banks would hold them on their books, and then they would sell them. And these banks got in trouble because eventually Bear and Lehman got in trouble because they had so much gunky mortgage on their books that they couldn't move it, and they basically their toxic assets. They couldn't move them. They had to mark them down. That just destroyed the banks. But that's not what we're talking about here. So Paulson's looking for, he brings this guy, Pellegrini, Pellegrino, whatever his name was. He was a friend of his from Barry, brings the guy in. 
And he says, go find me a trade. And this guy, look, you know, he's done well in his life, but he's never broken into the top, you know, analyst field at these banks. And he realizes that the mortgage markets are overheating. And he starts researching it. Paulson realizes the mortgage markets are overheating. And basically what they're able to, they start raising money for a new fund. And, and, and they figured out that something was off in these markets. You had people, you know, the famous story about John F. Kennedy's father is he got into a cab in 1929 and the cab driver starts talking to him about the stock market. He's like, look, if you're, you're my cab driver, you drive, you're an Uber driver, you drive me from you know, the airport to my apartment, you're telling me about my business, which is the stock market? That's not right. So Kennedy clears out, sells everything, ends up you know, saving his fortune. And he makes more money in the downturn. In the movie, The Big Short, I think, that's the one where they go to the strip. Is that the one where they go to the yes. strip club and they're the strip and the strippers are talking about it? They're like, huh? I mean, look, stocks, everybody complains stocks. If you have $100 in a Robinhood account or a Merrill Ledge account, you can play the stock market. You won't make very much money out of it, but you can be involved in the stock market. The barriers to entry for these houses are much, much higher. Paulson doesn't go to a strip club. He, he doesn't do that. But he basically comes to the same realization. He, they realize something's not right here. We're doing something wrong. As a society, people are getting, we've, we've watered down the loan to the point where people who are just simply not going to pay the loans back are getting mortgages. And his insight, which right now, 15 years later, it sounds like, oh, that's obvious. It wasn't at the time. People really thought that housing prices would go up forever. And you know what? There are reasons to think that. I mean, you look at a place like California. First of all, there's the matter of space. You know, there's only so much space in a particular area. So eventually you have to start densifying and building up. But we won't let you densify. I was reading an article a couple of days ago about Venice Beach and how L.A. has actually de-densified itself since 1950. So whereas L.A. was zoned in 1950 or whatever to have, you know, X number of homes, they can only have two thirds of that now. And you have people moving in the city's not if it's not growing, it's somewhat stable. If, if there's any growth, you're going to see prices go up and they've gone up to the point where you can't touch a, ha- a house that a generation ago would have been. The equivalent deflation adjusted of like 250 or 300,000. This is the same thing we're seeing in Vancouver too. You know, in 20 years, the housing prices have, have become unaffordable. A bungalow is costing two million dollars. These guys figured that out, and what they do is they go to various banks and they basically develop a way using derivatives, which are very complicated. I used to understand it a lot better. I would have to go back and read a couple more books to really get my head around it again. But ba- yeah, or we can invite a guest in the future. We could do Take that. Someone on the so, show. Uh, so basically, what they're doing is they're taking out a, they're, they're buying derivatives. He's basically buying a financial product that's enabling him to bet on the fact that the housing market's going to fall. And this is not in the book, but he goes out and he actually selects with Goldman Sachs the securities that he wants in that bank. So he's betting against individual bonds with individual mortgages in it because he figures that, well, the contagion is going to be going up. So I'm the bet against it. And essentially, it starts in slow motion. And there's a very interesting thing there about people about 
how we can't raise money for the fund. The people who normally raise money for these hedge funds, these funds, don't want to invest with them. You know, who do you normally raise money from if you're an investor? It's, by the way, it's the same thing with a real estate investment. You raise from high net worth individuals, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, you know, people who have big pools of cash. So he goes, the example I'll use is this guy, Jeff Green, who's some billionaire from California. He made money the old-fashioned way in real estate. Yeah, leverage. Jeff Green. Yeah, he was a real estate developer. So Jeff Green goes to Jeff Green and Jeff Green basically says, you know, I like this idea. I'm not going to invest with you. I'm going to, you know, do it on my own. I would never invest in an option because if you don't understand exactly what that means and you don't know exactly, you're going to lose your shirt because you're going against people who this is what they do for a living. Green copies him and Paulson finds out. And you know what? To Paulson's... I understand this. If I came to you with a great idea and you took the idea and I'm like, wait a minute, that's my idea. I'm investing with that. You can't just go and copy my idea. He's really mad. These guys ended up making a killing. Burry, uh, the guy, the doctor who was in the big short, he also makes a killing, but not as much. And one of the big things about the book is they start seeing the contagion happen. And the question is, when do you cash out? When do you sell? When do you do all that? How, how much cash and guts do you have to carry this through? And this I'm going to tell you from memory. It started when two bear hedge funds collapsed. They had these two real estate-related hedge funds. I don't even remember what they were doing. Bear had to bail them out. And, and then it spread from there. It spread to companies like New Century, who's mentioned in the book. Countrywide basically sells out to Bank of America, and Bank of America takes like $50 billion in charge downs because of that, because they figured out Countrywide was basically a mill selling crappy mortgages to people that were putting them out of their houses. New Century gets into problems. That's a company that, that's the genius who said, well, you can always just refinance it and we make money off the fees. That's great until the music stops. And Professor Clark recommended a book, which I bought, and I just took home from my apartment. I put it into a gigantic box downstairs and i have absolutely no idea where it is in the box so he uh recommended wait hold book. on is he kevin clark yeah kevin clark he read the book a he big a big shout out to professor clark i have been following you on twitter please follow oh, me twitter? back he's on twitter i'll have to follow him on twitter if there's yeah. one commercial real estate person that everybody has to follow on twitter he's one of the top 10 people that I highly recommend everybody to follow. Oh, he's great. I actually um, correspond with him infrequently. If I see something interesting about WeWork, I'll send it to him. Because... Wait, uh, Kevin Clark, right? Kevin yeah. Clark? Yes, Kevin Clark. Let me look at his. Is it okay if we give him a shout out? Would, would, he, would he not be happy? Uh, I, I did not know he's on Twitter. I always valued everything he said because there was a lot of insight in it i think he's a bro well, he, he has knows. he has over two thousand followers on twitter uh you um, then you should follow him because he brings a lot of insights uh here's the thing though so jeremy when did the bank start saying hey look let's put in the risky loans into a triple a rating yeah that's complicated what they would do was they would put a whole bunch in and the theory was was that you know, you'd mix them up so that there wasn't that you know the theory was was that the triple a would insulate you from the crappy ones nobody assumed that the default rate like i think the home ownership rate in america over a three-year period dropped by five percent that's like unheard of it's traditionally been in the mid 60s at one point it was like 69 or 70 
that was like that never happened before. I mean, and one of the things that was so interesting about that was that people started walking away from their homes. And in the book, one of these guys calls the the government's line. They see it just walk away from the property. That was not something we ever did in this country before. Nobody ever said walk away from your property. The idea was always stay in your property. And eventually, you know, you, you do what you can. You get a second job. You sell your car. You do what you have to do. Do a short sale. That was something we had never, ever, ever heard before in America. So I think these guys figured out something like that was going to happen. But what Kevin Clark had recommended was the book was called This Time It's Different. I haven't read it. I bought it. Everybody always assumes this time it's different, but it never is. It's always, every time is different, but it's always the same song. You know, there, there are like three or four types of recessions. A real estate recession is one of them. We've had them before. They're coming again. The past COVID one was a unique one because it was demand side recession. Now we're having supply side problems that are leading to inflation. So all, you know, Peter Pan said all this has happened before and all this is going to happen again. And you know what? Disney was right at that time. But nobody thought it would happen like this, except these guys. So the, the bear funds collapse. A few months later, bear starts having problems, like actual bear stearns. And it gets to, you know, so what happens is it's like the run on a bank, right? So the traditional bank run is everybody goes there and says, hey, you know, I want my money back. People are just, with Wall Street firms, it's a little different. People are saying, I don't want to do business with you because I don't trust you. And you saw this in the book. He's got risk with, I don't know, probably Lehman Brothers or Merrill Lynch. And he calls JP Morgan. And he's like, would you take on my counterpart? But basically, what he's saying is, will you buy the trade for, and take it over for me? And they're like, no, we're not taking on their risk. We don't know what's in their book. So Bear Stearns collapses. This is in March. I was going to a wedding when they collapsed. I was filling, I heard about it when I was filling up with gas. Over a weekend, they were sold to JP Morgan for $2 a share. The problem was that the building on Madison Avenue was worth like a billion dollars. They basically sold for like the value of the building. So they ended up having to raise it. It was a whole mess. The world keeps puttering on, right? The rumors are percolating and everybody's saying, well, who's next? Everybody thinks it's Lehman Brothers. It turns out it's Lehman Brothers. Then it's, it, it, so it's going to be Lehman, then Merrill, then Morgan, then Goldman, because they were the five investment banks that were not commercial banks. JP Morgan and Bank of America and Wells Fargo are commercial banks. So they're sitting on trillions of dollars of our money. So in theory, they can't, they shouldn't, it's much more difficult for them to go bankrupt. The investment banks were investment banks. All they did was buy and sell and trade and advise. Merrill Lynch, Armageddon comes in September. Dick Fult has six months, does nothing. He's doing, he's negotiating with the Koreans. That doesn't work out. Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. Wait, so for Lehman to be saved, they actually almost turn to the Koreans for money, right? Uh, yeah, is that, that is a great story. I recommend Too Big to Fail. And you can also watch the movie. So they, they, they basically- I think Fult, it was a margin call, margin call. That was a movie, right? Was it margin movie, call? Uh, that's a different movie. Too Big to Fail is the movie that's actually about this. And you see in that movie, Fold is going to the Koreans and saying, but I, my, my stuff's worth more. And they're like, uh, no, it's not. Nice knowing you. We're going back to Seoul. 
Art. How old were you in 2008? Probably like nine, nine, ten. Aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't we the same age, Minjia? Yeah, I was in seventh grade. Yeah, seventh grade. Yeah, yeah,、oh, yeah.、Okay. I mean, back then, Jeremy, have to remember back then. It was still experience that we lived through, but at the time, I remember like a lot of parents and a lot of families. They were so like, it, it, oh, was, it was tough. It, it, it was on、like, again. Like so, people, yeah. So I was that age in '98 when there was the currency <laughs> crisis, and I remember it because I remember it was on Time Magazine or Newsweek. So I remember there was something going on in Asia. I remember that Russia defaulted. Oh, we should also talk about the Asia financial crisis and yeah, the, the, Hong Kong and Thailand and Soros. No, like you're you're actually proving what Kevin Clark said. This time, if it's the same thing, it's just different people and different things. So first, in that one, first it was was it Korea, then it was Thailand, and it was Russia. Basically, people just walked away from their debt. Collapsed and basically, Bear Stearns at one point wasn't. There was a big Wall Street rescue. They were trying to rescue an investment bank or a fund, and Bear Stearns. They didn't get along with people. They were very tough, and they wouldn't participate. So ten years later, they go around to the banks and they're like, "Are you guys going to help us bail out Bear Stearns?" And they're like, "No, screw that guy." Lehman Brothers was a different story, but there's a theory called moral hazard. Moral hazard basically says. I I can't protect you from doing something stupid because if I protect you from doing something stupid, then you're going to do something stupid, and I'm going to have to socialize the losses. So under the theory of moral hazard, they felt they had to let Lehman collapse. That was on a Sunday. I was in law school, and I remember when you knew Lehman was going under. I remember I looked at the kid next to me and I said, "There goes my life. There goes my career." And here I am. But anyway. Lehman goes under, and the market tanks. That so now the the next one they're going to worry about is Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch cuts a deal with Bank of America. John Thing calls Ken Lewis, and they cut a deal.、Uh, they sell Merrill Lynch to Bank of America because Merrill Lynch had a lot of toxic mortgage stuff on its book, and they talk about this in the book how Merrill Lynch had taken on. You know, originally Merrill Lynch was a brokerage firm. So there were a bunch of types of investment banks. So Merrill Lynch was a brokerage firm. You called Merrill Lynch. That it was very stratified on Wall Street then. So you had your WASP firms like J.P. Morgan. They were, you know, the biggest bank of them all.、Uh, they were a very, you know, WASPy firm. You had the Jewish firms like Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers. Kunlob was a big one. It later became Lehman Brothers Kunlob, and then it became Lehman Brothers again. You had brokerage shops like Shearson Lehman. Shearson. I could sit here and ramble and. Talk about names for hours, but Merrill Lynch was a brokerage firm. They made their business hiring stockbrokers who would sell stocks. You'd pay a, a commission to them. It wasn't well now. Now they're money managers, and they make money a different way. They make money off of like a hedge fund makes money. They charge a percentage of what the assets under management. Back then, they charge you. I'd call my stock, well, my not me, my great grandmother would call, and my grandmother would call their stockbroker and say, "Buy fifty shares of this, sell fifty shares of that. Fifty shares, ten bucks each, five hundred bucks. You pay the brokerage fee, which would be I, I don't know, you know, twenty, thirty, forty dollars. You're going back forty years. Now it costs Robinhood. There's no charge. 
Merrill, I think I pay eight, seven, eight or nine dollars to trade stocks now. So those guys, their, their business model has changed. But Merrill had converted from a brokerage firm to a full-blown investment bank, and they had a lot of this crappy mortgage stuff. They sell out. Next up is Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Morgan Stanley, which was originally Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, which was the brokerage firm from Sears. Uh, Morgan Stanley, so they have the same structures as Merrill Lynch. You've got a bunch of people selling, you know, like I have a stockbroker at Morgan Stanley. When I was a kid, it was Morgan, MSDW, it was Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. Now, by then, it was Morgan Stanley. But they had a big investment bank doing, you know, selling things, giving advice to people. Investment banking, where they give advice, is like there's the only overhead there is, is your office and your people. But they had a big trading desk that had a lot of problems. They sell a nice chunk of their company to the Japanese, to, to Mitsubishi Bank of Tokyo, or whatever they call themselves now. The Japanese tried to wire the money. There was this isn't too big to fail. There's a funny, you know, they basically called them up and said, uh, the banks are closed. You need, can you bring a check? And they actually print up a check for like $9 billion and just walk it over. And they're expecting, they walk in on like a Sunday or something. And they're dressed very formal. They're like, we're here for the ceremony. And they're like, ceremony? We're just going to deposit your check. They take a picture. They have a picture of the check in Too Big to Fail. It's like $9 billion. Like you can Google. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, since since show us the link. I feel like we have to talk about the book Too Big to Fail since you mentioned it so many times. Uh, yeah, we could do that next. I'm basically talking about it to, to explain the background behind what's going on. So here's, here's the check. I'm going to send you guys a picture of the check in the chat. It's a $9 billion check. Goldman sells to Buffett. So what's the lesson? Always have cash. Because if you have cash, you know, cash is king. But I heard Buffett, like, end up, wasn't Buffett going to try to buy a Lehman Brother, but then he said no? Oh, no. He bought warrants in Goldman and got a 10% dividend and made billions off of it. So Buffett, <laughs> trust me, Buffett took care of Buffett very, very well. Look, so why do we care about this? So while the world is crashing, John Paulson is basically sitting there saying, holy shit, I am making a fortune. And the question he's dealing with is, when do I say? When do I sell? How much because did he make? 40 or $50 billion? It wasn't that much. It was like $9 billion. It was like $4 billion in one year and $5 billion in another year. He made billions of dollars. Like I think was, his firm made a lot more, but himself, he, he made... I think the number for his firm, at one point, they had $24 billion under management. They went from having like $700 million or a billion to, to, to $24 billion. They bet. Like, so what's he worth? While this is happening, what's, what are his concerns? Number one, when do I sell? Number two, is the bank that I bought? Who did I buy the insurance from? AIG. That was who ultimately had to had it. So AIG had to be bailed out because they went and sold derivatives and all this other toxic crap to everybody on Wall Street, you know, because AIG, just so you understand, they were they are a giant regulated insurance company. One guy in London was going around selling things like this because they had a AAA credit rating. He was able to take in premiums because he never thought this was going to happen. Hedge funds and Goldman Sachs would buy these things to hedge. He never thought he was going to have to pay. So the banks are having to put up collateral, and they talk about this in the book. As the market goes down, the value of their trade goes up and up and up and up. So what are they worried about? They're worried about, look, when do we sell? What do you care about when you sell? 
you care about two things. One, can I maximize my profit? And, oh my God, are the people on the other side of these trades going to be able to pay me? Because mm-hmm. if I have a trade worth a billion dollars and Bear Stearns just went bankrupt, get on the line, buddy. <laughs> you know, you're, the, you're an unsecured creditor. Green ends up getting 93 cents on the dollar for his trade. He makes the killing because what ultimately happened was the bank that he had it in with, I think it was Merrill, basically just, just pay the guy whatever. We can't have this trade open because we're, we're, it's, gonna, it's growing exponentially. But they, they, you have to understand these guys required guts to steal because they were losing money until the trade turned positive. And then Pellegrini, this is one of the big things, the big conflict in the book is Pellegrini is saying, John's made his money because Paulson invests in three funds, right? Paulson one, Paulson two, Paulson three. He clears out Paulson's one and two. So he's made his billions. Pellegrini's like, well, all my money's in Paulson three. You know, he's, I'm at risk here. What if the trade fails? What if Bear collapses? What if the counterparty collapses? What if we're just never going to collapse? So that's one of the conflicts in the book. At the end of the day, these guys made a killing. And they made a killing by realizing that the real estate market in the United States was way overheated. And by the way, this did not happen in Canada. The Canadian banks did not get involved in this. They were much stricter. The regulation up there is much stricter. They were not involved in the mortgage syndications like the American banks were. So Paulson made a, a, a mint off of this. That's also a once-in-a-lifetime trade. At the end of the book, they say he had a second trade. I don't remember which trade it was. A trade like that, this never happens. This happens once in your life. Once. It happened twice with George Soros. Or the UK and the Asia collapse? Okay. He broke the, he broke the pound in 93, and then he broke Malaysia in 98. So it was Malaysia who was first. The contagion spread from Malaysia, went up. But then Soros ran out. You know, Druckenmiller, his, his cellmate, you know, ended up losing money on something else and ended up going off on his own. You know, it was the quantum fund. The, you know, it's to trade, you need to have guts of steel because, you know, imagine what it's like. These guys, first, you're losing millions of dollars a month. Your investors are calling you up and saying, you're losing my money. Stop this. It's enough. You're Jeff Green. You've put up this money and you're getting margin calls because look, you know, you've got, listen, man, you've got, you've got expenses to make, you know, you've got houses that you've got to pay up on, you know, it was guts of steel and Jeff Green ended up running for Senate in Florida, I think. He does very well. Of course, he moved to Florida because there's no income tax. You don't have to pay income tax on any of that. He didn't move to Las Vegas. I think guy they like guys with that kind of money tend to live in Palm Beach. They buy like mansions on the water. You know, I think they'll end up living in Las Vegas after the uh, the rising sea comes and takes their houses. But you know, I mean, look, these guys made a killing. But just, just take a second and think about what they must have the decisions they had to make. One of the cardinal rules of investing is that the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. That's a good quote. Let me write it down, put it on my Twitter. 
It's by John Maynard Keynes. Uh, the stock market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Just Google Lord Keynes and you'll have a lot of quotes like that from him. These guys realize, you know, the question they're coping with is, is the market, how long can the market stay irrational? You got to time that. That's the problem. You got to time that. And they, they were able to time that. You know, when I was reading this book and when I was well, What did watching, you think, by the way? So when I was reading this book, I think I remember one quote in the book that talks about was John Paulson, the smart one or the lucky one? Because I'd assume everybody who worked at those investment banks and everybody at Wall Street must be smart, right? But when he That's was- That's not necessarily when, true. Like, I, I was just trying to say that he made a decision that against it, everybody else's and were everybody else just not as smart as him or he was like the lucky one that betted well, against a overheated market that he was able to realize, but if- Another person, instead of John Paulson, like another person did the same thing. Well, I look, I, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really great question. And I, I don't know if I can answer that. Well, I will try. Uh, Wall Street has a lot of really smart people, but they also tend to move in as a herd. Every industry tends, there's conventional yes. wisdom. Yes. So there's the herd. You know, are you going to be the guy who can bet against the herd? Paulson bet against the herd. Now, why did he do that? Because he believed that the data showed something was wrong in housing. If you think about it, rationality showed that there was something wrong in housing. The fact that you had stripper... Why did my... <laughs> I, think the, I think the bulb is dead. As long as the, the, the clock is still on and the phone is still charging, it's, it's the bulb. Um, I'm sorry. So... Look, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. We know that. Uh, well, okay, I just like completely lost my train of thought. Um, uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about against. Oh yeah, the hood. So, so you mentioned that Wall Street. Everybody works on Wall Street. Could be smart, but everybody tends to stick to own same hood mentality. Well, that's what the market is. The market goes yeah. up because people buy. The market goes down because people sell. People panic, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got your model. How long, are you going? Are you willing to bet your life that your model is right? What if your model's wrong? Paulson recognized that there was something wrong in housing. In theory, everybody should have remembered that there was something wrong in housing because when a stripper is buying three houses to rent out, not even renting them out, something's wrong. Paulson recognized that, and he was able to capitalize on that. It's hard to raise money from people to go against, to be counter cyclical, because you know what? Generally, people want to go with the herd. That's why you buy an index fund. You know, I'm not going to bet against anybody. You know, Wall Street was like, look, you know, housing prices should go up forever. Why? If you think about it, you know, we're we're dealing with something like that now. You know, housing prices continue to go up. Now, why are houses prices continuing to go up? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one is limited supply. It's an artificial mm-hmm. scarcity. Zoning, the fact that, you know, people want to live in X place. But, you know, is it, yeah, but when you get more granular, maybe housing prices in Duluth aren't the same as New York. And by the way, we did see housing prices in New York go down. 
substantially last year, or at least rental prices. You know, prices outside the city went up. To mm-hmm. unsust- I know someone who bought a house a decade ago for three fifty. He sold it for eight fifty. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. dinky little. It's a nice house. It's a dinky little eighteen hundred square foot split. It's not worth eight. I wouldn't pay eight fifty. Well, maybe I'd have to. But you know, people don't like to go against the herd. And, and then it takes guts to go against the conventional wisdom because most of the time, look, I, I've bought stocks that over the years that I, I, that everybody else said were bad. I said, well, you know, if I'm, let's say I bought GM when it was at 20 in 2000, I would have lost my shirt. Look, the markets are filled with bubbles. Like just think um, Lordstown, all these SPACs, all this nonsense going on right now. It's the mm-hmm. same thing over and over again. So... Yeah, it takes something to go against that. You you borrow money, so you're levered. Your investors are calling you up. The more it goes down, like Green, he's constantly having to post more collateral because the market's not, he's like, the market's supposed to crash, but it's not crashing. And remember, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent, unless you're Warren Buffett or the Japanese because they have unlimited stores of cash. You know, that's the problem. So these guys, what they did, and, and what happened to Burry? Burry was right. The problem Barry has is that Barry's investors flipped out. His investors were like, ah, forget this. You're wrong. We're selling. So he ends up, make, he becomes wealthy, but not pulsive wealthy. Because his investors, I don't want to say they chickened out. They just, it's not for everybody. I mean, when you're making that kind of bet, like I said, you've got to have guts of steel. Yeah. You have to be willing to, the world is burning down around you and you're going to stick with it. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. When everything tells you you're wrong because you know you're right. But then again, you're not operating in a vacuum because you've got people calling you saying it's enough. This is costing me money. The way that these derivative contracts works is if it's it's like a margin it's like a margin call in reverse. You have to keep putting up more cash. How much cash? What happens when you run out of cash? Then you have to live with it. You know, I'm, so, so yeah. Go ahead, Albert. So that that's interesting, Jeremy. So what do you think about all these bubbles that's coming up? We had the SPAC bubble, real estate bubble. At one point, didn't we have a Bitcoin cryptocurrency bubble? Like oh, about four hundred years ago, we had a bubble in uh, tulips. Yeah, tulips. You know, tulips. Then... We had the South Sea bubble. Even the great Newton lost his shirt in the South Sea bubble. The problem with the bubble is, is you might think it's a bubble, maybe it's not. And when do you when do you sell? When do you buy? When do you sell? It's it is impossible. I was once talking to a erstwhile friend of mine. And he said to me that he had, he owed money to his student. He had the money to pay off his student. He put it into the into the stock market. And I was talking about that with the next day with somebody who actually knows this stuff. And he looked at me and said, "Jeremy, that guy is crazy. Just pay the debt off. You know, you, you can't time them. You can never time the market, especially you and me. We are not professionals. You're competing with computers, with artificial intelligence, and with people. This is what they do for a living. Okay, you are never going to beat the market." It took me 10 years to realize that. Now I buy index funds. And then and then remember the dot-com bubble? You probably lived through the dot-com, uh, dot-com bubble, right? Oh, yeah. you you had uh, There was a company called Pets.com. It was like a sock puppet. I, I don't even know what it did. But then again, we're seeing the same kind of thing happen in the VC bubble. So mm-hmm. with the tech stock, 
when I think of bubbles, I think of pets.com. And so now there's Google, right? There's Google, Yahoo, and Bing. Those are the big search engines, right? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, there was Lycos, AltaVista, Go.com. Just Google late 90s search engines. There'll be about 15 of them. Yeah. How many of them live? I don't even think Lycos exists anymore. No. <laughs> That's funny you said that because, um, you know, what's funny? A lot of people said that they think the housing price in Toronto or Canada is a bubble, but I don't think it's a bubble. There's just going to reach a saturation point And for the new sellers and the buyers, it's going to be way too hard to time it right, you know? You can never time it right. But look, with the thing that, you know, there's that four-corner model that Kevin Clark taught us about. And the thing is, is that it always... In theory, the real estate market will always correct because when there's too much, you know, as prices go up, builders start building and then there's over, then that creates more supply and then that creates oversupply and then it goes in the other way. The problem, is, first of all, there are a bunch of problems, not the problem, the market, the, the model is correct because that's just how the world works. The problems are, you know, first there's credit, you know, where is the credit? You know, when you hit a credit crunch, like in the late 80s, there was a credit crunch and a lot of developers went bust, including a guy named Donald Trump. You know, he was overextended and he basically had to be bailed out by his lenders. So was Rupert Murdoch, by the way. Rupert Murdoch, Robert Maxwell, these guys all went bust. Wait, Rupert Murdoch, the guy who owned uh, Fox News? Yeah, there's a Jeffrey Archer book about him. I, forgot yeah, I the thought uh, the, the TV show Succession was based off him. I thought he was... Only in the media business. I didn't know he, he was. He was. Part. He was in the media business, but he had a lot of leverage and interest rates you know, became harder to borrow. He couldn't roll his loans and he he escaped. Murdoch is, is smart. Murdoch knows what he's doing. He managed to escape. But look, when you're over leveraged, you know, and the market turns against you, you, you go down in flames. It's true. Listen, it's, it's not only true for the real estate market, it's true for everything. You know, if, you, if you've got, what do you think did these people in who all bought houses? Their interest rates reset. They bought houses they couldn't afford at teaser rates. The interest rates reset. You know, the Fed raised interest rates. And by the way, at some point, the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates now. They're at zero. And when you have inflation, you typically raise interest rates. At some, I think they're afraid to do it because of the, because of the Delta variant. But you know, I, I, I won't talk about the coronavirus. I will probably you know, get hate mail if I talk about that. But- you know, look, eventually, you know, the, the rates, re- uh, Bernanke raised interest rates and these people couldn't afford their houses because they couldn't refinance because you can only refinance if the value keeps appreciating and if you can afford to make the payment. Now, what happens when Bernanke raises interest rates? Because remember, life is a giant cycle. This has happened before. The Fed lowers rates when the economy crashes. The Fed raises rates when the economy starts to overheat. So the economy started to overheat. So I think it was Bernanke at that time raised interest rates. Was it Bernanke or was it Greenspan? Either one. No, uh, no, Greenspan Bernanke. kept, no, no, Alan Greenspan yep. kept the rates at 1%. That's why. Yeah. So Greenspan was there for about 20 years. But he raised, listen, he raised interest rates and lowered interest rates just like the rest of them. The one who was known for raising interest rates was Volcker. So in the late 70s, there was, a, there was a phenomenon called stagflation, which is kind of what some people think we're headed for now, where you have high inflation and no growth. 
So what Volker comes in, meets with Jimmy Carter, basically says, you know, and he's got an interview, and Volker basically tells Carter, if you appoint me, I will take on inflation. Gets a point of what do you think he does? He raises interest rates to like 15, 16, 17%. I mean, that's that's a bigger like loan sharks charge that. So if you borrow the dollar, you're paying 15% interest a year. Just get your head around that. But there was high inflation. The economy went into a deep recession. But in 1983, the the recession ended. And until we did not have inflation for 30 years because after Volcker. This is why when people talked about 5% inflation last month, people freaked out. We haven't had that in years. Okay, that's like Argentina or Zimbabwe. But when the Fed starts manipulating rates, people get into trouble. And the people, the homeowners got into trouble. And that's where Paulson made his money. Because these people couldn't, they started walking away from the homes because they couldn't afford the payments. You, you borrowed more than you could afford at a rate that was low. Now it's resetting. So the teaser was like 2%. Now it resets to 6 I mean, run the PMT formula in Excel. They'll tell you what the uh, what your new payment is. Oh, my God, I make $50,000. I can't afford that. Here's the thing, though. So does the U.S. have a stress test? Stress test or no? Uh, what kind of stress test? Oh, for um, like pre-approval mortgage and such. One would Canada. think. One would yeah. think. But, you know, you read that book. And in that book back then, look, it's hard to get a mortgage now. Yeah, mm-hmm. because because these guys got burned. But, you know, yeah. back then they were giving mortgages to people. You ever see that movie Wall Street 2, Money Never Sleeps? The, Susan Sarandon is not working. She's got three houses and she can't afford any of them. Yeah. So people were just getting they, no income. Uh, there's a story about the guy who in the book about the mariachi guy. He He's a mariachi band star. I guess when you hire a mariachi band, you don't pay them in cash. So it's a check, you know, like I have a W, I had a W-2, you have a W-2. If you're working for a a partnership, you have a K-1. There are ways that you can verify your income. If you're self-employed as a mariachi band singer, and I'm using a mariachi band because this is what was in the book. So please, nobody accuse me of anything. This is the story in the book. They verified the guy, the fact that the guy was a mariachi singer by taking a picture of him in his mariachi uniform. You had other people, the two minimum wage workers, hardworking immigrants, they they teamed up with another couple. Combined, they couldn't afford, they could barely afford the home. The loan resets, you know, forget the fact that the, the rates are going up. The loan reset, they couldn't afford it. And the bank, you know, they go up to New Century and they say, well, how are you going to deal with this? Like, hey, you just refinance. Value always goes up. There's always more equity to pull out. But when you borrow, because... Because I read in um, the movie Inside Job, this essentially says that like some of these homeowners, you only have one percent down. That's absolutely correct. One percent down. How do you even have equity when you have only one percent of cuts? Because in Canada, like the lowest you can go in Canada is five percent, five percent. But that's assuming that you have to live in the house for oh, ten yeah. years. But you have to understand something. I'm sorry, Minja. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that not just for the homeowners, like in Las Vegas and Phoenix, there were developers that got 130% leverage, oh, yeah. 0% equity. 
look, you had asset price. You had you. They were awash in money, and they were making. Um, mortgage brokers were driving Lamborghinis. That's how much money these people were making. So yeah, they pushed the envelope because they thought that, that they thought the money train would never stop. And the lesson is, it always stops. Look, you know, you live in Las Vegas. That was the epicenter of that. And the funny thing is that, well, Lord Keynes also said that in the long term, we're all dead. But in the long term, it always recovers. You know, Las Vegas grew into itself. It just took 15 years. Now, the problem is, are you solvent over that 15-year period? Probably not. That was what was killing these people. So, you know, Carl Icahn was able to buy that tower because he was solvent. He had the money. But, you know, think about it. If I, Vegas grew into itself. At the time, they thought that these subdivisions were going to become the new slumberbia. You know, there'd be homeless people living. It didn't happen. It just took 15, 20 years for Vegas and Phoenix to grow. Now they're building 20 miles further into the desert. That's crazy. So it's interesting to see how Vegas went from the epicenter of the economic crisis now still turned around. I mean, think about, I, I think about like- it. Think about it this way. Okay. It's 2011, 2012. I don't have any money, but I have a job. I get a job in Las Vegas. I can buy a really nice house for nothing because the person before the bank owns it. The bank is like, you know, great. I, I own all these friggin' houses. Just, just take them, take them. I, I don't. They were called short sales or they're rios, um, real estate. Basically, the the bank. You have to understand the bank is not in the business of owning and managing a single family rental. One of the things Celebration Homes Blackstone did was they went and bought all those houses and started renting them out. Other people like would go and, you know, buy the house. You know, it's a start house. I spent $200,000 on a three bedroom house in a subdivision in Henderson. You know, it's it all foreclosed, you know, you know. I that reminds from- me, that reminds me of that uh, movie, 99 Homes. Have you seen that? No. What's no. that about? Oh, 99 Homes, basically, it was after the 2008 when the foreclosure crisis starts happening. But then uh, one guy starts working on the house flipper where he bought, do a wholesale buy, get the court's foreclosure, and then resell them. So the 2008 is bad for homeowners, but if you're an investor, it was the great leverage. Because you yes. had, yeah. Is it, isn't it that's where, that's when all of these house flipping TV shows Yes, yeah, well, well, the flipping the flipping TV shows had been around. In, I remember when I was they were the dumbest shows in the world. But you know, look, they the thing about flipping is that's what's so scary. Like I was sitting in the doctor's office and they're watching flip this house. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I remember this crap from when I was a kid. But that when didn't did end it become, very well? But when did it become such a popular? Because everybody I talked to would think like. The HGTV, the the property wars, the property brothers, or it's been fix. it's been popular often. You know, look, I think it's been popular for years, and it just you know I think it comes. Listen, like Kevin Clark said, it it, it always comes back. I think it's also because of social media too. You know, yeah. you get on Instagram or TikTok, everybody wants to see these renovations, remodeling, and nice houses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Professor Clark 
I hope you still remember me. I was a student two years ago. Please follow me back on Twitter. Well, we're gonna have to send him a. Uh, we're gonna have to send him a uh, copy of this because we've been speaking very reverently of him. And look, the the point that he was making was, look, everybody says it's different, but the world doesn't change that much. The situation changes, the players change, but it's this behavior doesn't change. Paulson right. was able to make money because he looked at the fundamentals and said, "This does not make sense." Everybody else was watching Flip This House or the Flip Show or the Renovators, whatever that hell show, HGTV, and they went crazy, and they lost their shirts, and now they're back. Question. <laughs> I posted something today on my LinkedIn about Howard Huge. Howard Hughes. Does, we, let me look this. Does, up. does everybody know about the story of Howard Hughes? How he. Bought? Howard Hughes was crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that's what I'm going to say. Anybody who don't know about the story of Howard Hughes in Las Vegas and how he kicked out the mobs and bought pretty much all of the hotels on the Strip and how he bought. Or exchange land exchange of Summerlin, and by the way, Summerlin is the name of his grandmother. Anyway, this is a side story. Oh wait, how uh, wait Howard Hughes was the um, should say this wasn't he? He the had aviator. a lot of aviator, but then he had a lot of um, illness or something. Or uh, Howard Hughes is one of the most interesting people in the in in the world. Yes, um, his grandfather or father had the patent to the drill bit that they used to drill for oil. So it was the Hughes Tool Company. He, when I was a kid, I went to see the Spruce Goose, which was this plane he built that was in the aviator. I was like, whoa, this is a plane. You know, it was like, the plane was like, it, it was like the biggest in A380 in 1940. It had like eight engines. But so basically, Hughes was a billionaire Texan. And he took his family's fortune and went and blew it on aviation. He was doing like, you ever see the aviator? That's him. At the end of the aviator, he starts repeating himself. And you can see these, these neuroses coming. They eventually get to the point. He no longer does aviation after the crash. And he moves to Vegas. And he takes up residence in the desert end. And he buys like half the strip. And there's a story where he orders banana nut ice cream or something. Yes. And, and he calls Briars up and they say, we discontinued that flavor. He's like, well, I want a special order. So they say, well, it costs you, it's going to cost you like 300 gallons or something. Fine. The comes, he has one guy says, ah, I don't want this anymore. They spent the next year giving out ice cream for free. That's how much money the guy had. Yeah. But he just he just bought things. But Hughes was always bailed out by the fact that he had the Hughes Tool Company. He had developed the aircraft company that was that turned into DirecTV. He was also involved in a very bizarre plot with the CIA where they went and they actually raised a Russian submarine. <laughs> you never heard. So there's a ship called the the, the Russians had a submarine that sank. And the CIA wanted to raise the submarine. And by the way, I am not making this up. You can Google this. It was called Project Azarian or Project Jennifer. The ship was the Glomar Explorer. They build this ship. It has like this gigantic winch. And it basically is going to take the Russian submarine off the bottom of the seafloor, lift it up like 
twice as deep as the Titanic, and they're going to bring it to this ship, <laughs> and they're going to basically, you know, go through it and steal all its secrets. So I've just built this gigantic thing, and everybody's like, so you have to come up with a cover story, right? Because otherwise the Russians are going to see that you're, <laughs> you're about to steal their submarine and they're going to sink your ship. So what do you do? You cook up a story that we're mining like manganese nodules or something, right? Like these things, they're starting to mine them now. They've got these ships that go around with like suction and suck these things up. They're like, you know, it's like deep sea mining. There's only one person in the world who's that crazy enough to actually do that. <laughs> Howard Hughes. So they get him to agree to help them with their project. The ship, the, the submarine gets like halfway up and then it like falls apart. So they, end, they ended up actually recovering like a portion of the submarine with some Russian sailors in it. They claim that there were not, there was nothing in it, but it was Project wow. Desirian movie. Yeah, it's actually on Amazon. If you can, if you have the a chance, I recommend watching it. It's it's, it's completely unrelated to real estate, but it's just a fascinating story. It's okay. And, and Welcome to it's my only... podcast. Uh, no, I, I think this this whole uh, podcast was interesting to hear that. Look at it from a bubble perspective. That yeah, the subprime mortgage crisis was bad for homeowners, but if you invested, like you, you just made money, right? I, I love how not necessarily pull us back to welcome to Mingja's podcast. Everyone, we don't really have an agenda, and we always go off topic. By the way, so the reason why I mentioned Howard Hughes is exactly what Jeremy said about the ice cream story. So that is what I posted <laughs> on my LinkedIn today. I love. How Jeremy already knows, like, you can read my mind. So the ice cream story, I posted it on Twitter. And there's actually an account that I follow. It's called Vintage Las Vegas. It's one of the top 10 Twitter accounts that I recommend everybody to follow. So this Twitter account replied to me and says, it's not Howard Hughes who ordered the ice cream. It's actually one of the maids at the desert in hotels who ordered the ice cream and then Howard Hughes didn't like the flavor and then they ended up giving the, the ice cream I, for free. I find it hard to believe that a maid would have the authority to spend that kind of money. I don't know, but I think there's a book about him and hold on, let me, it, it's the bibliography. Or Here's the something. problem. Here's the thing about Howard Hughes though. He was so crazy. That's a story like that. That's the kind of thing that people would like. It's yeah. like that's like that's why I mentioned the Glomar Explorer. You know, yeah. If there's ever a guy who would spend a billion dollars to build a ship to suck, suck like basketball-shaped things off the bottom of the ocean floor, it's Howard Hughes. Yes. So the reason why I mentioned Howard Hughes in our podcast is because I, I posted something on my Twitter and one of my friend, former guest of this podcast, Jackson, he commented, there's a fine line between genius and madness. And this quote, he always gives really good comments on my post, by the way. And his comment reminds me of Howard Hughes and John Paulson. When everybody goes against you, how do you know that you're the genius one, not the, the 
the, there's a difference between I think Paulson and a guy like Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was like crazy, crazy, like actually like crazy. Yeah, um, but yeah. on the other hand, he was a visionary. Like he saw, you know, if you watch the movie The Aviator, you mm -hmm. see how he. Did you see The Aviator? No, I didn't. No. Aviator. No. Two side stories. I have a lot of side stories when it comes to Las Vegas. Howard Hughes has an aviator background, just like Kurt Kikorian. Yeah. So Hughes in the Aviator talks about how he's gonna. He orders the constellation from Lockheed. I think it's a plane, and he's gonna use it to basically like island hop across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. He's gonna fly from here to here to here to London. Pan Am at the time was flying clippers direct across, you know, they were flying boats. He's crazy, but he's a visionary. And you see it constantly in the movie. He comes up with some crazy idea. He borrows money. It ends up working out. The difference between him and Paulson is Paulson was data driven. He had the data. The data don't lie. You know, the problem was that everybody was so caught up in their own bullshit and they didn't know him. So if Buffett had figured that out, Everybody would have invested because it was Warren Buffett. Paulson was some guy who had a hedge fund that nobody knew. And yeah, they were like, who are you? But you know, from his perspective, the data doesn't lie. What is that biggest scammer ever on Wall Street of the a guy? Bony Madoff. Bony Madoff. Isn't it there was a guy who reported him to the SEC? Yes, yeah, kids. But it, but SEC didn't care. It was a mathematician. It was a Greek it was uh, Harry Markopoulos. So the story with Madoff is a little is is interesting. It's so and interesting. The thing, and the thing you have to understand: there's a great book about Bernie Madoff called Wizard of Lies. I gave it to my mom, but they they based the HBO movie off of that book. So basically, Bernie Madoff was a pillar of Wall Street. So at the time, Nasdaq was not publicly traded. He was one of the first, I think he was a market maker. So he was a very important person on Wall Street. And he, he had a big business, but he was also, he has, this, he has this unregistered hedge fund, basically. And at some point he gets caught and nobody knows when. No, he gets caught after the 2008 when yeah, but he got want what, what happened was, was he got caught in a bit of a situation because he lost people's money and he didn't want to admit it. And that's yeah. when it converted from an actual investment fund to a Ponzi scheme. Or maybe it was always a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. You know, we don't know. But Madoff, Madoff was also a bit of an affinity scheme. He was Jewish and his clients tended to be wealthy Jewish people from Palm Beach in New York. He had a lot of Jewish charities. Yeshiva University, where I went to law school, had a lot of money with him. The Wilpons had a lot of money with him. They were big real estate investors. Are, are you a baseball fan, Art? Uh, not really, but yeah. Google Google Bobby Bonilla and and the Met and the Mets. Bobby Bonilla, just Google a little. Tell so basically, yeah. they were investing with Madoff at fifteen percent. They were earning a fifteen percent return every year. The statement it never varied, and nobody you know. They didn't want to ask why. I mean, nobody asks, you know. But but I heard like a lot of international businesses also invest with. But, yeah, he had, um, he had he had something called feeder funds. So he had these people who would go out. One of them was Jayez Ramirez, 
Uh, one of them was this woman from Europe, her name, who ran a bank called Bank Medici, which sounds like it's you know important related to the Medici. It's actually not. It was just a. She called it Bank Medici. Uh, it's it's like me calling a bank Bank Keynes. You know, I, I I'm not John Maynard Keynes, but you know, I call myself Bank. He had a lot of international people, and look, he had, he had a big client base. And what happened was the market collapsed in 2008. And he didn't have enough money to meet the redemptions. And that's when the Ponzi schemes collapsed. He tells he allegedly tells his sons, both of whom are dead um, now. Yeah, he's also passed away recently. Yeah. He died about a year, within the last year. He was hanging out with, with Snake down in, I forgot the name of the prison. They were in North Carolina. Butner. They were in, um, they were in prison in North Carolina. He was hanging out with, with Junior Persica, who was the head of one of their five families, they were in you know medium security prison together but he was a listen it was a big ponzi scheme and and the thing was was madoff was a giant of wall street so we got away with it the the thing is though yeah he was a giant wall street but i think one of the biggest thing that people uh didn't really caught on was he's very exclusive he didn't just take anybody's money right that's why people liked it yeah Yeah. so oh I want to be in a club that won't. I personally don't, but you know, people want to be with someone who's a, who's exclusive and doesn't want their money. If I he wanted you to, you had you, you would want to beg him to take your money. Just like art galleries. Yeah. 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 It's or, a, or it's nightclubs. not about or nightclubs. Yes, it's not about what you sell. It's about how you sell it and to whom you're selling it to. Exactly. It's like a nightclub. You know, people want to go to the nightclub that won't let them in. I mean, look, I don't go to nightclubs. So I, I this makes no sense. I, I would rather sit in my house, in my couch than stand outside the nightclub. But, you know, people will stand outside nightclubs for hours to get in. You know, and uh, look, I mean, it's loud. It's noisy. It smells. I don't want to go there. But it's, Madoff it's- was able to make a lot of money for himself. And he has abs- he had absolutely no remorse. I think there is a term for that kind of marketing. I uh, think it's called just a Ponzi like, scheme. No, it's, no, I'm, yeah, I, I know, I know what you mean. Basically, you're selling you're selling exclusivity. You're selling the fact that I can't get it, and that makes me want it more. Like the fact yes, that, okay, that people can't. hunger marketing. No social currency. Social currency is it? No, it's, it's called hunger marketing. I would oh, call that social currency because it's like appearance. Because because no, I'm not talking about appearance. It's like limited, stuff, exclusive. Like if you go into their store, if you go to an art gallery, you say, "How much is this?" If they don't know you, if they don't like you, they will say it's not available. Oh yeah, it's try buying a Ferrari. Sale. You you can't buy a Ferrari. It's impossible to buy a Ferrari. You have to like buy used Ferraris for a few years. It's it's, it's mm-hmm. this is yeah, this is yeah. how these places work. I mean, I shouldn't say this, but do you think CRE has exclusivity? CRE, commercial real estate? Because I find- oh, I, was uh, like, I was like, what is CRE? Is that a stock? That's, that's, oh, no, that's right. This way. is a commercial real estate podcast. Not not um, in the same way. Yeah. But I, I mean, think he's listen. talking about the exclusive connections yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, industry, yeah, yeah. not the yeah. products. Listen, it's, the industry is a club. Yeah. But if you have enough if you have money and you want to invest, you'll be able to invest in that. Yeah. 
But you know what? Try getting started. People, and look, it's, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly the same problem that Paulson had. He couldn't get anybody to invest with him because they didn't know him. It's a different right. kind of problem. The problem is, is I won't give you money because you don't have a track record. You're a merger arc guy. Go, go merge, go deal with mergers. But I have this real estate plan. Oh, I'll just take it for myself. I'm not going to give you money. So no, because I find, I, I don't know about New York, but I could see New York has like a, exclusive club of like developers it's kind of hard to get in mm-hmm. i mean it depends on what level you want to play on if you just want to do a simple if there's yeah. there's a very high barrier to entry but yeah. the biggest barrier is going to be raising money because people aren't going to give you money if you haven't done anything before and yeah. that's exactly what paulson was dealing with people didn't want to give him money because they didn't know him and, and, you know, if you think about it, that makes sense. Why would I give you $100 million to invest in real estate if you're a guy who does, like, stock trades? And you've got this complicated, convoluted formula that I can't follow. I want to know yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. But on the other hand, people, endowments would give people, people would give hundreds of millions of dollars to Bernie Madoff because he was a nice guy and they liked him. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's not people, just in New York. I think it's everywhere in the local market. Mm-hmm. Listen, every market has its expert. Like, you know, yeah, Vegas yeah. has its experts. Yeah, you know, I, and look, if <laughs> I come out to Vegas and I want to start investing in real estate, do you really think I know Vegas better than you or better than Howard Hughes Corporation? This is what they do. They know Vegas better than yeah. anybody. Yes. No, and, and that's the thing. Hey, we might have to. I might have to run in like five minutes. But I was gonna say. So, I mean, to get started in any business, it's kind of a club. You have to know the people. They can vouch for you or sponsor you, right? Mm-hmm. It's always hard to get started. What you do is you get, you know, you fit or you find a niche. So yeah. what Paulson did was he found a niche. He was a merger guy. He built a hedge fund. He was rich. This took him from just being a, a, a somewhat wealthy, you know, guy on the street to being one of the biggest guys in the street ever. And look, if you're good at what you, you know, it's always hard to get started. But if you want to do real estate, you know, and you got to, but the key is having money. It's hard to find the money to do. Then you need to find the deal. Think about it the other way. Let's say Paulson had a billion dollar fund, but he didn't have anything to invest in. Yeah. Sorry, I might have to. Because uh, I might actually have to jump off because uh, okay. I got. By art. By art. So casino developers on the strip. Think about the Mirage. In 1989, 630 million dollars. When all of these Wall Street analysts said it's impossible to build a hotel that's this expensive. It was the most expensive hotel in the world with with mm-hmm. a volcano in front of the hotel. And then the Bellagio, an eight-acre man-made lake in front of the hotel that nobody have done it before. And all of the Wall Street analysts and his investors, too, were questioning him. Why is the Bellagio so expensive? $1.6 billion in 1998. It was the most expensive hotel ever built. And why did you spend so much money on art and have a gallery you know, it was a $300 million art collection. So I don't know. Because I, I, he, had, he had an information asymmetry. He understood what he was doing. 
A Wall Street analyst is an analyst. He looks at public. He looks at balance sheets and says, "Why are you doing it? You know, run with the crowd." He was willing to run against the crowd. Like Paulson had the data. He knew what the data said. Win doesn't have any data. Win has himself. He looks in the mirror and says, "How do I get people to come here?" And you know that is just a gift. You、yes. can't con that. You can't. Kerkorian was a bit of a different story. But you take a guy like Win. He's not an operator. He's a developer. He can operate、yeah. too. He's very good at that. But he knows because he's been an operator what it takes to get what it takes to make things work.、Yeah. And you know, look, he's a guy who has an idea. He was in search of money. People are willing to give him money because he paid them for it. You know, he paid people a very hefty coupon for the use of their money for ten years, and that was how he was able to get funding. The problem was was that you know. He had. He took on a little, little too much debt. I think what I'm trying to learn from this book and the movie is that how do I know that I am right and everybody else is wrong, and I have to stand on my ground to prove that I'm right? And、uh, I would look at, at yourself in the mirror, and I'd say, you know what you know, and you know what more than that, you know who to ask to find out if you have a question. And and trust me, when you find something,、mm-hmm. when you find a deal, you'll know. You just know. Like Paulson knew. He just knew that. How did he know? You, you just know. I, I mean, it's it's. I guess it's kind of like dating when you meet. You just know.、Mm-hmm. Everything connects. And you said before that you didn't understand the private public markets, but you know what? You do understand the public markets because you, if you're in development, you have to raise debt. What is debt tied to? The public markets.、Yeah. What is、so. demand tied to? The public markets. What analysts do? Tino used to make us study REITs, and I would say to him, you know, but none of us are going to work for REITs. And he said to me, you know, Jeremy, you say that, and you're right. But I can't teach you anything. The only thing I have to show you. Are what REITs do, so you can use them as a leading edge indicator. Are the private markets different? Absolutely,、mm-hmm. but they're not that different.、Mm-hmm. And they always ties to the, the the everything is tied together. Everything, especially so, in real estate, because of debt. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, my podcast is all over. We always go off topic. So, <laughs> any last、time. questions? Comments, stories. Yeah, I think what you need to take, what we need to take away from this book is that you should always know what you're doing. Paulson understood what he was investing in because he had the data to prove it. You, you can believe what you want, but he believed it. But he also went out and found the information to back it up, and information that backs up your belief is an unstoppable combination. But how do I know that I'm the right one? This reminds me of think about the book Other People's Money. Do you think Tishman's didn't have I don't know these market research back them on that? I think Tishman.、Project? I think I, I think the lesson from that book is twofold. Number one was Tishman did not know the market. They did not know affordable housing in New York City. Number two was everybody went crazy. On that deal, and there were people after people dropping the deal. And look, these are people who understand what they were doing. Paulson had the confidence to go up against those guys in a different way. 
everybody, the people who were experts. But he recognized the people who were experts were crazy. But on the other hand, it's the same thing with Tishman because you had people who were experts like Aria and Reckler bidding $5 billion too. So what you, I think what the key is you have to actually understand what's going on. Yeah. And Paulson understood it better than anybody else. So if you're developing real estate, you need to understand how to build better than anybody else. You need to understand the market that you're building in better than anybody else. Yeah. That's what you can control. The, the thing is, is that the data will never lie. Mm-hmm. Now, you can misinterpret the data, but this, these guys understood what was going on really before anybody else, which it's getting to my bedtime. Um, yeah, it's my dinner time in West Coast. It's Jeremy's bedtime in the East always, Coast. It's always my bedtime. I have to go let the dog. I'm dog sitting this week, so I have to let the dog out before I uh, go to sleep. So, Thank you so yeah, much, I th- Jeremy. I thought it was a great book. Thank you for having me on. And look, I think the lesson is for all of us, understand what your market is. If you're a developer building houses, you need to understand the condo market or the single family housing market. Understand what you're competing with. Paulson understood that. Mm -hmm. And he understood it better than anybody else. Better than anybody else. That's the lesson that I learned. That's the best quote from this episode. One of the best quotes. You have so many good quotes. Better than anybody else. I like Uh, that. And when, when he built, he understood what people wanted, which is basically his market. The yeah. people who came after him, you know, they, some of them understood it. I don't think they understood it to the depth that winded. And that's where they get into trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And look, you can copy it. It's not it's the not same. The, it's not the same. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming to the podcast. All right, Jeremy, you need to go to bed now. You look really tired. I and am I'm tired. hungry. I have to eat my dinner. <laughs> Thank you so much this was for great. coming, Jeremy. And then we will do another episode probably in two or three weeks. If you're on Apple Podcast, please don't forget to give us a review. And please share this episode on your LinkedIn, social media. Share it with your friends and colleagues to help us to spread the words. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. LinkedIn, YouTube, this podcast, and also our email newsletter so you can get notified for all of these upcoming events. We are hosting a free webinar about hotel recovery trends and outlook on August 20th, Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific Time. We have four speakers and they are from HVS, Arbor Lodging, LWHA Asset Management Group, and Kexon Group, which is an Asian family office. So this is a free event and the recording will be available on our website, YouTube, and this podcast. We will put the registration link in the show note. Please forward this link to your friends and colleagues and share it on social media to help us to spread the word. If you haven't subscribed to our email newsletter, please go to cre-media.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you so much, everyone. 